0: Welcome to the successful athletes podcast presented by trainer road, where we interview successful athletes to make you a faster cyclist. And in this case, we're joined all the way across the pond from me here in the United States. We're speaking with Lydia out of the UK. How you, how you doing Lydia?
1: Oh, good. Thank you. Great.
0: Where are you based out of?
1: I'm based in Winchester, which is in the South of England and, uh, about 15 miles from the sea. So yeah, very nice. Oh, nice. But I'm in the country. I just live in a very small little hamlet in the middle of the country, which is
0: lovely. Oh, how pretty. That's awesome. I I'm I'm picturing it right now. Very green and pretty. <laughs> it is.
1: It's lovely. Lots of birds, wildlife, hills. <laughs> yeah. Little hills.
0: <laughs> that's that's a perfect place to ride a bike. It's uh perfect. Sounds fantastic absolutely
1: wonderful for riding bike. Absolutely one Yeah. Mm.
0: And that's what we're going to get into today. Uh, so Lydia, probably the first thing to cover here and what, uh, immediately struck uh, me, so when you wrote in to be on the successful athletes podcast, which thank you for doing that by the way, and you can do so you just go to trainroad.com slash podcast and click on a little banner there to go to the successful athletes podcast. And you can submit right there. I'll also have a link in the description below for you that will take you right there so that you can enter, um, your story into this and. Uh we want to hear from everybody that's used train road to accomplish something. And and you actually mentioned that Trainer Road was helping you improve and you thought that that because of your age, you thought, oh, well, I'm probably not going to be able to make those sort of improvements or or you know turn those weaknesses into strengths, that sort of a thing. So let's start right there. Um uh, how old are you? And and which usually is a question that a gentleman never asks a lady, but I figure it's critical for this one. Yes. Um so how old are you? And then also getting uh, let's let's talk about where you're at now in terms of age but when you started becoming really athletic in general
1: um well i'm 64 and i'm unfortunately i'm getting on for being 65 in january um and i've had numerous problems and injuries everything you name it i've had lots of things and um (laughs) i was always keen on i was always very active as a kid and um Charging around, learned to ride a bike at a very early age, you know, running, climbing trees. And um, mm. I wasn't brilliant at ball games and I always got bored with them very quickly. And I just used to not catch the ball or, you know, I just got bored and looked out looked the other way. And, you know, but I loved anything mm. to do with running or I loved swimming as well. So I was swimming, running, I was always on my bike in the garden and round the roads so yeah you know very early age I started yeah. but obviously at, not at that some point,
0: <laughs> right at some point you became uh what you would classify yourself as a runner was that in your teen years or was that uh, later on
1: it was funny enough um in my teen years I used to go for long long walks and I love nature and I wasn't very sociable. I loved being out on my own with nature. And I just used to find that, you know, I'd go for hours and I'd find that oftentimes I just wanted to go faster. So I just started to run and just thought running's lovely. I just enjoy being in the hills, running down the hill and wind in my hair and all that. And I think I was a natural runner because I never had a problem I could run a mile and didn't train or anything where well, you don't, at that age, you don't really train. And then, so that's really that I knew I loved running just cause it was so natural.
0: That's so interesting. That's like the most purest form of endurance sport right there oh, is just is, yeah. <laughs> the experience itself of running is, is what brought you into it. Did you get to a point where you were doing like, you know, real training for running? Oh, yes, later yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, when I, I school I was at one of them they we did do a bit of running the the next school I was at I wasn't particularly happy at all and we really they weren't at all interested in running as a sport and although I showed an interest it was never taken up but once I left school I went to university and there was a chap called Brendan Foster who's a very famous runner and he set up something which I think is similar to park run. They were called fun runs. And when I was at uni, mm-hmm. I decided these things are about two miles. I decided I'd just join in. And I had a pair of flimpsals and a gym, like gym shoes, pair of shorts and a T-shirt. And I ran this thing and I, I got round it. And it turned out, I didn't win, but I was the second girl to come in. Wow. And that suddenly, I suddenly got interested then. So I then... Sort of two years later, I sort of started getting interested in training for running and then entering things like cross-country and joining a local club and entering cross-country races. And I ran on the track as well. And then I sort of heard about road races and the longer distance things. So I I really got into it big time, started Hmm. training. For how many
0: years were you a competitive runner? And then on top of that as well, uh, I guess, what distance did you gravitate toward the most or focus on?
1: Um, I was probably competitive from aged about 20 till well, right up really till I was about 48, 49, um, long career of lots of. Any and my distances were really. I mean, I seem to be pretty reasonably good at any distance from 1500 meters to on the track to um marathon and ultra marathon. And I ran the London to Brighton, which was in those days about 53 miles. So, wow. really, any and everything from one mile to <laughs> sort of. I think six, I think probably about 64, 70 miles was the longest run I did in one go. Uh, yeah. So everything and anything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How cool. So I uh, kind of like a, a whole broad spectrum of mm-hmm. it. And at some point you, you, I uh, ended up getting interested in cycling and this is, this is a really interesting point that I want to, want to cover here because. This is a really common story actually, where a lot of people are interested in running and doing that, but then they end up in cycling. Usually it has to do with something with injury. Mm. Was that the case for you avoiding a running injury or did something else bring you to cycling? Uh,
1: unfortunately it's the same old story. So nothing brilliantly (laughs) exciting, but I never really was, I like riding a bike just for having a bit of fun and falling off everywhere and just doing crazy things, but (laughs) I just used to look at cyclists on the road as complete freaks. And I just thought, why would you ever want to do that? It's so boring. And then when I got injured, somebody said to me, oh, you need to go and do um, do time trials. You can ride a bike. That'll help you recover from your... And it was an Achilles tendon injury at the time. Mm. So I, I got a bike. It was um, a Claude Butler, which is a touring type bike. And I sort of started by doing little time trials, usually the 10 mile ones, the shorter ones. And it was just so hard. I hated it. Every time I got to a hill, I just virtually had to stop. And I, I didn't have any idea about changing to a low gear. I just used to mash a huge gear. And being a runner, I couldn't ride. I couldn't spin at all. I just mashed a massive gear. and about 70, 60 reps, you know, mm-hmm. it.
0: And
1: so, mm-hmm. so no, it wasn't, I, I just, I thought I'm never going to be a cyclist. I, I don't enjoy it. It's just not, it's not like running,
0: but mm-hmm. that changed. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, so once you got out of those time trials, cause I'm going to like fast forward for a bit here to now, and then we'll end up going back and getting into more detail here, but. You now raced everything from cyclocross to long, you've even done 200 mile events. So, yes. so what brought you from your competitive position in running to going, I want to, and, and I should say a stepping stone within that to then doing time trials and being frustrated with the Hills and the gears and everything else to deciding that you wanted to race cyclocross, which is one of the more intimidating disciplines in many respects, just cause it's so technical. Yeah. And there's so many elements to it. It's really dynamic.
1: Well, I. I think it started with the start of um and the development of the first mountain bikes. And I was I was doing a few triathlons at the time and I hated the cold. So I didn't, the swim just wasn't my thing because I hate the cold. And then I met someone and, and they said, Oh, you ought to get a mountain bike. So I bought um secondhand mountain bike and I never looked back really because it I was I sort of rolled around my local terrain which has lots of footpaths and tracks. I fell off everywhere, into nettles, what <laughs> cuts, you know, just kept falling off and everything. And um, because we didn't have suspension at all in those days. And eventually um I met a chap called Mick Ives who was who ran a mountain bike team, and he said, Oh, you know, you need to enter the rate one of these races. So I entered the expert class, which I thought I'd probably be pretty good at. And <laughs> I was. I was pretty good until we got to down going downhill, which I'd never really done off-road, not proper downhill with roots and rocks and all sorts of weird things. And every time I went downhill, I would sort of got towards the front of the group and, and I'd crash and they all hated me everyone were so annoyed with me because I kept falling off in front of them and then either they'd fall off and slow down and I was generally messing up the whole race and in the end of the day I managed to come fifth and I thought well actually I really enjoyed this and I'm going to start doing this as a proper sport. So that's when I went from the bike with no suspension to getting the sort of You know, a decent bike which had front suspension. I think it was a Scott, it had front suspension. And I started to do really well in the expert class. And then I was sponsored by a local bike shop. And it went sort of went on from there. So mountain biking was my my big sport. And I won lots of um, you know, races, sort of local races, and then I won the national championships and things like that. And it all kind of I got more and more enthusiastic about biking.
0: Uh, We can't glaze over the fact that you're winning national championships. That's seriously impressive. Um, and, and I want to ask you two questions in particular, what strengths from running helped you most with cycling and particularly mountain biking, did you find that you were particularly able in any specific ways because of your background in running?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um. Really, my general aerobic and fitness, my ability to run, my ability to ride pretty hard. You know, I had I was able to ride fairly high towards my maximum heart rate, and to be able to maintain that for a long time. And also, my I'm quite small. You know, I'm five foot two and weigh forty nine. Pounds, I think. Is it pounds or kilos? And um, yeah. must be kilos, mustn't it? And um, mm. I was always good at, I was really a hill runner, so I was always really good at climbing hills when I ran. And, um, you know, that was my forte. But the same thing started to develop. Although I told you about struggling on the hills on the road bike, as soon as I got a mountain bike, I suddenly realised, actually, I'm quite strong. I can ride pretty quickly mm. uphill, And the the long hills that go on for miles and miles seem to suit me the the best, not so much the very short, sharp little hills that need a tonne of power. So that was my strength. And if anything, my weakness was a little bit on the technical side. So I was, you know, I tend to come off a bit and tend to fall off. That, that was my better. next question
0: actually, is how did you, uh, what, what helped you go from being the person that was holding the field up on the descents to mm-hmm. winning national championships? That's quite a progress. What was the most impactful thing to make you a better technical rider?
1: I think just doing it over and over again and watching some of the good athletes talking to people. Um, I had a couple of, there was a coach in our club who there's a couple of us girls and he take us out to a hill and find all sorts of gnarly things for us to ride down. And, um, and that got me a lot more confident and got me a lot more. I mean, you talk about the um, bike body separation, which as a time trialist, you don't, there's none of that. And, and of course, well, big time bike body separation when you fall off, but obviously there's some nice bit in the middle Uh, So yes, I learned that and I got so much more confident about riding fast downhill, about also riding slowly downhill where you're not just using speed to get yourself through the thing. You need to know you can ride down it in control. So I learned a lot about that. And more recently, I had some coaching in France with a company called AQR who do a lot of training and coaching for athletes and also mountain bike holidays. <laughs> and that was much more extreme than our hills over here. It was in the Pyrenees. So there was some pretty mm. rocky, terif- for me, terrifying descents. But I, I sort of managed it and I learned quite a lot out there. So I, I sort of learned about rocks and how to ride yeah. rocks, you know, both up and down. And we also had a camp in Portugal I used to go to and there are plenty of rocks and things out there and funny little technical courses we did. So, yeah, I mean, I've improved hugely. And I'm now I built myself a manual machine because I'm going to learn to do a manual. And I've always wanted wow. to do that. And I've always wanted to, to do a wheelie and never quite <laughs> never quite made it.
0: That's really cool. <laughs> that's actually something that, uh, coach Chad recently built. Uh, and if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know oh, who yeah. he is, he's going no, to listen to it all the time.
1: And yep, I'm yep. about that and he went on the same, I think it's Kyle and April's, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, that's how I learned how to build mine. Um,
0: yeah, it's fantastic. And it's a great skill to have for sure. It's something that I need to do a whole lot better at. I want to, so you, you've you been competing for years and you also mentioned something else you've overcome a ton of different obstacles throughout the course of those years. And like we're talking about here, becoming a proficient mountain biker and, and you, you just laid out a lot of different things that you did to overcome that. So you seem to be the sort of athlete that encounters an obstacle and then kind of enjoys the, the process of overcoming that oh, and yes. learning and getting better That's through it. Fun of it at yeah. And one of them that you mentioned, I think is one that we probably don't focus on enough, which you mentioned that at some point throughout your athletic career, that you, uh, were also had, uh, struggled with and overcame an eating disorder. Mm. And I want to know, when did you start to recognize that and how did you start to recognize it?
1: Well, I was pretty unhappy at school and the transition from junior school to senior school, I was sent away to boarding school and. It was so different. I found that quite difficult. And the whole thing of being a teenager, I found very difficult. And I realized that my body image wasn't what I wanted. And I started to think I've got to lose weight to look better and so on, as you do. And um, it just all started from there. And then my parents went through a really nasty, messy divorce and we moved to Bristol, and I was sent to a school, a girls' grammar school, and I I was at a co-ed school before, and I really didn't like this school. I didn't really uh, identify with a lot of the other kids, and I just, some of the work was, I was useless at maths. I just felt generally I was a failure, and that seemed to accentuate everything, and I also felt I had no control over my life because I had no choice in, being sent to this school and mm. I just couldn't there's nothing I could do I just had to live with it our meeting or disorder got worse and worse and I just got where I completely stopped eating apart from you know I'd sort of have an apple for breakfast and drink plenty of water and drink I would drink coffee because that sort of reduced my appetite and um my parents divorced everything went got worse and worse, and they were so wrapped up in themselves, they didn't really notice that I was struggling with something. Um, so it was pretty bad because it completely I became so un- unsocial. I couldn't because when you have an eating disorder, you can't join in with anything because there's always food around and you 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 don't you feel very uncomfortable around food and you worry people or pressurize you to eat. So it's pretty bad and it went on for really till I till I was about sort of 18 or 19 and I went to university and I was trying really trying to get over it because I'd started running and it was my grandmother who uh, really helped me because I left my parents home and I'd spend lots of time staying with her and she sort of slowly she didn't make me but she just had stuff and I could just have a little bit if I wanted and I spent a lot of time uh, walking and running and I think it was a very slow process but I think mentally I began to change that I realized that I really loved running but I was so weak that I'd go for a run and then Hardly able to walk when I got home because I had had no nutrition, and um, I suddenly something goes in your brain and you suddenly change. You realise actually maybe I will want to eat a little bit. Maybe I can eat a little bit. And but it's totally mental. It's no there's no way you can physically make a, someone with anorexia eat. It's probably the worst thing you can do. And it it has they have to make the decision. Actually, I'm just going to try a little bit, and just going to have something, and um, and it gradually just. But as soon as anyone pushed me, if anyone made me eat, I'd literally run from the house, and I'd be gone for the whole day, you know, or I'd stay out all night. I just wouldn't. I just. It was so terrifying. I'd just go. And in fact, I still don't like, I mean, I hate Christmas because I hate being faced with lots of food. And I, I still have the, I still carry some of the feelings of anorexia within me. And I still feel uncomfortable in social occasions. And I feel uncomfortable around lots of food and, or being thinking I've got to eat something because people will think I'm rude if I don't. And yeah, I, it's 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 a difficult one, but I do feel that I've um, well pretty much conquered it, and uh, it, it's doable. It's it's perfectly doable, and you know I I've proved it, and uh, I eat pretty well now. I'm healthy diet, and I love my food, and you know it's I've I've made progress. <laughs> And you mentioned
0: an interesting takeaway there about an athlete that um like l- let's just say a, a person that is struggling with it that really has to be an individual choice on their end oh yeah that other people can't force them so and I let's like externalizing this a bit more is there anything that either your grandma did or th- looking back that you wish people could have done to help you in that situation
1: um I think it was just. Being away from my parents and the stresses of that and the expectations, I had my father was an academic, so had very high expectations of me and I was useless. So, so I think it's um, uh, getting to a place where you feel comfortable in yourself and you feel other people are not. other people are not trying to run your life and force you into things. Because I think that's quite a it's a feeling of lack of power, and you and you you have to take control, and you you've got no power over what's happening to you, and you're being steered in a direction you don't want to go. You're uncertain about the future. Um, maybe your self esteem is is low. Maybe you're a bit of a perfectionist, so you view yourself as being not as good as you want to be. Um. And I think that um I think other people can help by not, not bullying and pushing and oh you've got to eat this and because that doesn't that doesn't work, you know, with nanorex, you just can't you you know that will make them run away and go more into because you go right into yourself and you retreat into a sort of self-contained little bubble. Which was a comfort bubble for me. I, I, I quite like that, um, but it's not particularly healthy. It's at the end of the day, it, I'm much better now that I can socialise and I'm. You know, I have good relationships with people now, but mm. um, yes. Yeah, so it's it's a lot of things, and uh, it's such a complicated, complex illness and. You know, it affects everyone in different ways and there are lots of different things that spark it off and it can be all sorts of things. But I think at the end of the day, um, you have to make the decision, to, you have to decide to try and move on from it. But what was important for me was having something I could do that, really made me feel good so for instance running was something it just gave me this amazing endorphin and there's nothing else much in life that at the time that did and suddenly I realized I'm good at this I can I'm actually a really good runner and I I soon realized that I was better than most people and I had this amazing ability and you know being outdoors and it just I thought Now I've got something, it just made me feel so much better. And the eating was difficult because unfortunately it affects your whole gut system, your stomach. And I couldn't eat things with fat in them. It used to, I used to feel nauseous and it would, I felt as if it was in my stomach for hours and I didn't like that. So I that took me ages to be able to eat fat and I'd eat sort of very low-fat everything. Um, and the recovery took ages because of the damage it does to your insides um, and so on. But, you know, it's, you know, everyone can get over it and it's it, it takes a lot of doing. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you can see it through. And I think there's a lot more help for people with anorexia now, and I always, I'm always, i always willing to speak to anyone because I've been through it, I know exactly what it's like. Um, but one of the things about anorexia is that, as I found, um, there are certain things that you might do that, you know, are pretty unpleasant maybe. And, you know, you you really don't want to talk to a normal person about it. Whereas you could probably talk to someone else who's had the disease or going through the same thing. Um, and people who've got anorexia, they'll know what I'm talking about. But uh, yeah.
0: Mm, so finding a support system that has a level of relatability and experience within that can be really helpful. Um, well, we're going to look through, I believe that, um, there are some sites not, and I, I, I hesitate to mention the names cause I think I'll, I'll not get them correctly, but I will put them in the description below on different resources that we could have here. Um, also if you are an athlete that's experienced anything like this, there will be a forum post on this and, and, uh, you can jump in there and DM me to, to keep it private or DM uh, in this case, Lydia or anybody else. And, and if we're able to connect you with anybody, or if you've overcome something like this, please send me a message. So then. I can kind of build up a bank of people that maybe might be able to serve as that support system for somebody else if they need it, if we can come across that. Cause it's, it's a tricky thing when you're talking about cycling and that, you know, your, your performance in so many cases, it really does come down to your power to weight ratio. There's more that governs your performance in terms of, and your ability to fulfill your potential. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And racing is much more dynamic than just a simple numbers game. However, we do have to kind of face the facts that yes, power to weight is important. So that can really put a lot of stress on you. Um, but as you've mentioned, you've been able to manage it throughout these years. And, and you say that you, you still carry parts of it. So are there, is there, are there any sort of tactics or what do you do now? If you ever suffer any sort of temptation to entertain that condition once again, What do you do now to avoid that? Is it just focusing on performance with the sport, uh, or, or your passion for the sport or, or what do you do?
1: Um, when I feel threatened by it, I, um, I am quite good at avoiding social occasions and as I said before, I find Christmas very difficult. So I've got to the stage. I, I have, I have horses and my, I've got a very good excuse, which is, well, I can't stay because I've got to go and feed the horses or actually I can't come because one of our horses needs some treatment. So I, if you don't mind, I won't join you. Um, this year it's going to be, well, with COVID around, actually, I'm quite happy I'm going to do disaster on Trainer Road instead. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, I won't be indulging Christmas at all. So I usually try and um, not, to be involved and if, if it is a social occasion most of the time I since I've given up alcohol I'm a lot better about controlling my eating I won't eat eat till I feel uncomfortable and then feel really guilty about it or be bulimic or something like that I will uh, be very sensible and just think well just have this this and this and then walk away from it and not be tempted to sort of eat so much like everyone else does and then feel pretty awful. So I, I kind of manage it, but I do struggle sometimes. And you know, I mean I have to be honest. I I could say, oh I'm fine, I just have no problems at all, but it's it's not the case really. And um I just find my normal I'm much better if I've got a a sort of reasonable routine that like have at home where I, I know what I'm going to eat and then I um, I train and I know what I can eat when I train and what I can eat before I train. And the training's a big part of keeping me sane and just keeping me happy and not feel restricted as if I'm just sitting around doing nothing and then being, being really, feeling really awful. So it's a big part of my life.
0: Yeah. Training can be a great input for that in the sense that it can be something that's very passion driven, where we are achieving very real things for ourselves. So we can put focus into that. And then as we've mentioned so many times before with nutrition, there, there does seem to be an obsession within society to to starve ourselves for any number of different reasons, uh, it exists, uh, it's to indulge over the top and then to starve mm-hmm. ourselves and kind of go back and forth and, and with athletics, we tend to like celebrate when people do something with the, and he hardly ate anything or she mm-hmm. did that whole workout. And <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's not a healthy thing it at all. And, and no, in fact, no. we should, we should really be pushing ourselves for like that. You really felt fueled that effort really well, like, cause that is, That's something that's honestly really hard. It's something that you have to train to be good at. And I think that it's something that, that, that is, uh, I, I, at least for me personally, with my relationship with food, I have found that in, in prioritizing training appropriately in my life, I tend to fuel my body better and I start to provide my body, what it needs. Whereas when I don't have training, it's always difficult for me because then I start to look at things do I really need food? Do I not? So I've never, I don't know that I've ever personally uh, struggled with anything that you would classify as any sort of an eating disorder, but I do think it's important that all of us athletes be honest with ourselves. Like what you were mentioning there, that. Our, our relationship with food is complex it's, and yeah. it, it isn't something that we should just try to brush under a rug or ignore. Instead, we should try to understand that relationship and, and try and be patient with ourselves and loving with ourselves and kind of walk through that and learn constantly. Um, so hopefully, hopefully, uh, if you're listening to this and hopefully that can be of some help to you or those that you know and love, um, and if you have any questions on that, please head over to the forum post for this one. This is episode 25 of the successful athletes podcast. So you can just search that in the Trainer road forum. Um, let's actually kind of pivot off of the, onto the training side of things. So it's really just this year in March of 2020, this year that you started with trainer road, and I'm so curious, as soon as I read this, what was it like going to more, uh, going to the training that you have with trainer road, that's very structured and. And very laid out to be, you know, a very specific goal is being accomplished with it. I don't know if you trained with that level of specificity before, if that was new, but what was it like to start training with trainer road this year?
1: Um, it was quite exciting really, cause I had done in the past, I'd had a coach a couple of times and I had one and I'd have a written training schedule. So I'd have what I was meant to do each day and at what intensity and I I was familiar with interval training because I love interval training and I get very bored just going for a ride so I have to have something to spice it up but it was still very very different because although I had a power tap at one stage that was on the mountain bike so when I trained on my road bike which I did all my intervals on I always just went with heart rate and I used to sort of sit and sit doing what I thought was sweet spot and then I'd go off and I'd do about six by one minute and think oh I worked so hard and then I'd go home and then when I got to trainer road I had the biggest shock of my life when I saw some of your sessions <laughs> because I thought well there seemed to be three sets of about eight of these things like the one I did last night which was Ainsley Adams and so hard mm-hmm. and I just but I thought, well, this if this is really gonna work, I've got to stick with it. So I started in Sweet Spot Base. And I, you know, again, it was quite hard because it was far longer than I thought. I thought, you know, after about half an hour, I thought, well, I've done enough now. I think I'll just make a coffee and and go. You know, I think I'll just finish. I've never trained like this before. And but I stuck it out and uh the more I stuck it out, the more I enjoyed it. And then I found that I could quite successfully do it. And that there was no question of uh, stopping workouts halfway through. That's not really me. So I thought, no, you do your workouts, you sit there and you get through it and you put something on in the background to listen to, which is podcast normally. And, and I really got addicted. So now I'm a bit addicted to it. <laughs> and, um, and I found that, as most people do, that my I did the FTP test, and I think it came out at about 130, which is very low. And I thought, oh, so so lousy. I can't, I'm almost ashamed to tell anybody um, <laughs> what my FTP is. So I, I worked my way up from that. And then the next time I tested, which was probably about um well in the summer anyway it was probably sort of June or something and I, and I and it was 155 and I thought well that's a bit of a jump I was quite because I thought well I'm too old to really be improving much and I was it was such a shock I just thought well is it just is there something wrong with my computer or is there something wrong with my trainer you know so well, it must be a mistake so then I thought I started training with it and um sure enough you know particularly the sweet spot and below sweet spot I was absolutely fine you know brilliant just swinging along thinking yeah this is fine and then as soon as I started doing the build phase things changed a bit and the first vo2 max I did I was nearly crying it was just awful it was just everything hurt I was thought I was going to asphyxiate myself I mean I just had a terrible time and I thought no way am I gonna put the intensity down and I went to bed I was just in a right state thinking I don't understand I can't do this I don't know what's wrong with me and I went into a sort of bit of a, a depression about it and got on the forum and then found that a lot of other people were going through the same thing and struggling and it's just the way it sort of start. So now I've actually suddenly I'm finding i I mean I can do the VO2 Max pretty well now and um and it's all becoming easier in a way. So <laughs> I mean it shouldn't become easier, but it's gone from being an absolute killer to something that's bearable. <laughs> something I like find yeah, more manageable. Yeah, more manageable
0: yeah Not being that's that's the wreck <laughs> yes, that's the tough part is um I think that a lot of the time with training progression in general you know we, we or actually I should say we forget that there is a progression to training a lot of the time, and a progression doesn't mean that it's always perfectly gradual. sometimes it's a bit steeper than others mm-hmm. and then uh, but over time it tends to become more manageable and and you have to progress those energy systems. Kind of, you know, intelligently or strategically, I should say, and how you go about it. So there's a, a lot that goes on behind the scenes in trying to find those, you know, appropriate ramp rates for all those different energy systems that you're trying to train up. So I mean, a 128 to 155 FTP increase in four months. But then not only that, you've had you've done a ton of races this year, and I want to get into so a couple things, and I'll say these things so then you don't have to blush. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I'll say them just the same. So you won an eight hour endurance mountain bike race. You got third in the over 50 division at a two hour c- cyclocross race, mm-hmm. which two hour cyclocross race sounds like a nightmare for most people of doing those intense efforts and then uh, second at the Wessex cyclocross over 50 as well. You've won plenty of different events in different uh, spots. And also to be clear, you're competing in the over 50 category many times, even yes. though you could be competing in the over 60 category if it was allocated as such. Yes, so. Often it so isn't. Right. So uh, that's uh, just hugely impressive and I think that's really inspiring uh and what you said, you know, with talking about how you felt like you were too old to see those sort of improvements mm-hmm. and uh replace if you're listening to this right now, uh, whoever you are, replace too old with whatever your reason is. And I think that a lot of us have reasons that we put in uh, myself included many times it's I'm too busy or I have too much going on, or I'm too stressed or something else. we'll put those things in place. And as a result, they, they really do serve as blocks, but if we just take the steps forward, we can really topple a lot of personal barriers and man, it's so empowering. Um, so. I just find it really inspiring uh, what you've been able to do with that. Lydia, I want to, uh, end things on well, with two questions. First of all, you also did a 200 miles South we- or South Downsway unsupported ride. It took you 27 hours. It was cool. brutal. And I can imagine your definition of bad weather in the UK is very different than my definition <laughs> of bad weather here. So, um, can you walk us through really quick what that race was like, and I guess like what got you through in the tough points? Cause I imagine over those 27 hours, oh, there were really horrendous. hard points where you wanted to mm-hmm. quit. So what made you keep going?
1: Um, I built up to this through, uh, meeting people who were into this ultra endurance. And I discovered there was a, um, you, you go for a record on an unsupported attempt at this 200 mile. It's out and back. It's basically hundred miles from where I live to out to Eastbourne, which is a coastal town 100 miles away, on an ancient old drover's road that has a lot of history attached to it. And it's virtually no road, and it's just continual hills. It's not not like your area, your sort of climbs, but just up and down all the time. And the terrain is chalk, a lot of it, which is extre- in the wet. It's just extremely slippery and pretty dangerous to ride on. Um, and um, this event it's not it's something you can choose to do anytime and but you do need proof that you've done it so I had there were spies out who'd suddenly pop out behind a bush just checking that there I was and I wasn't I didn't have someone opening gates for me and I was on my own and I was going along I hadn't got secret backup anywhere and these little people would suddenly jump out and sometimes they'd accompany me for a bit on their bike and weren't allowed to open gates or anything you know because that's part of it and the other thing is you're not allowed to give you food or any sort of medical attention or I mean say how are you doing mate or something and I'd go oh I'm terrible or if I was in a good mood I'd say oh brilliant I'm absolutely flying and whatever and um and it was so hard, and I started. I decided to start at nine o'clock in the evening, which was probably a bit of a mistake, because I set off in the dark, and as soon as it started to rain, I I went I went off straight into a ditch full of nettles and got my face stung with nettles, which was fairly unpleasant. And this was after about 35 miles. So and then the weather sort of went from bad to worse and by the time I got to the 100 mile marker I was on schedule because I decided I wanted to get there in 12 hours so it sounds very slow but it, it's a very hard ride and particularly <laughs> in the wet. and I got there and I had Rory Hitchens who was um, doing the photography and generally organizing me and he was at the turn point to check obviously to say hi and take a photo and check that I'd got down to the turn point so I hadn't gone and taken a shortcut or something and by which time it was raining really hard and I got to the point where I, I tried to get on the bike and I ended up walking up the first point after the turn and then it sort of it got better and better for a bit and then I should think three quarters of the way through it suddenly just all went downhill i I started to feel nauseous. I'd been eating gels all the time and I suddenly felt terribly nauseous. I couldn't get any drink down me apart from plain water. I didn't want to eat anything and everything just, it just went from bad to worse and my shoulders were hurting and one of my knees was hurting. And by the time I got to sort of 30 miles from home, I was feeling pretty desperate, but then I thought, well, I'm only 30 miles from home. It's nothing, you know, it, anyone can do 30 miles. And even if I, even if I walk some of it, one step forward is better than just sitting moaning and wishing an alien would come down and take you away. So I, um, yeah, it was really tough. And then I started to get hallucinations and see sort of, Bears, bears in the trees and I, I had these funny little black things that would race towards me and which I think were to do with the lights you know the reflections of the lights but everything mm-hmm. everything seemed to be hallucinating and then I'd see I saw a couple of wombats in the back in front of me and and I'm because <laughs> I didn't want to hit them and you know all these weird wonderful things and um and it was I thought well somehow I'm going to get back and I eventually got back to the and I was just sort of exhilarated because the last sort of on this ride the last sort of three miles three or four miles most a lot of it's downhill and I was absolutely flying and I suddenly got a new lease of life and you know sort of felt great and I had the last of my I think I had Cherry Bakewells or something I had the last of those and then I went flying into the finish and um with the celebrations at the end and it was half past midnight by then on a, a Friday night in Winchester and lots of drunks wandering around and police cars and um and I I was fine and then as soon as I got off my bike I felt extremely weird I felt I was going to pass out and I ended up lying on my back on this little wall and um with the police cars driving around looking at me as if I was drunk and it was all it was a wonderful experience and I wrote um I wrote a piece about it afterwards and had lots of photos and which unfortunately I lost but um computer at them so that's sad. But no, it was an amazing experience. But do I want to do it again? And the answer unfortunately is no. So I haven't, mm-hmm. it's not something I want to do because I know I don't think my I've got a false, I've got a artificial hip and partial knee. And I just thought it's just too much to put my body through to attempt that again. So although I ride I do long distance riding and mean, I can ride ten or twelve hours non stop, but twenty seven hours is just it's pushing it a bit. You know, yeah. with, and I didn't stop at all. I mean I was riding all the time and mostly I ate I had things in pot I ate while I was riding and then if I stopped to open a gate, I'd if I wanted to get a one of my cherry bakewells out or a little ham sandwich I had, I'd stop and eat it while I was opening the gate tried to be quite efficient with the timings and everything and there were water stops on the way so I sort of arranged I had my bottles filled my bottles up with water and all that sort of thing but the planning of the whole thing was the most it took me quite a long time to plan it and then I weighed I weighed everything that I was going to take with me and I had I had to make sure I took minimal weight because the weight's a huge factor and to take any unnecessary food or equipment or you know you don't you don't take your your toothbrush and your deodorant and you know people talk about baby wipes and I thought no I don't like those I won't even take those and um you know I sort of anything unnecessary I didn't take so I got it all organized and you know, many late nights, you know, planning the whole thing, and so yeah, it was it was an incredible event and very memorable. I'd got people to do it. I think everyone should have a go at it. <laughs> there,
0: there are some things that I feel like are best one and done, so to speak. Like, yeah, and I, I feel like I, I've I've done over two hundred miles once, and I was like, that's good. I've checked that box. You know, you have. Um, la- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. La last, last, um, question that I wanted to ask you here, Lydia is with an athlete with so much experience, uh, training and, and just being an endurance athlete for so many years, what do you see in us younger athletes? And do you kind of wish that you could just like, give us a piece of advice? Like, what are we missing out on that? Y- what piece of wisdom are we missing out on that you have earned over the years?
1: Um, I think some of the things are the mistakes I've made and learnt by and the things most of the time I my life is all about learning by mistakes unfortunately well I think it's a good way to learn but yeah you learn by faith and one of the things that I'd always like to say to a young athlete don't get faddy about food don't worry too much about your dart and oh and then you've got to train so hard all the time you're not mixing with your friends you're not Playing on the computer game you're not going out and you know I think it's so important and I didn't do this but it's so important for a young person to have a life and not feel guilty about not training and to enjoy their training because there's so much time in life I mean I've had so many years of being a competitive athlete and I think you know as a teenager they growing they need to eat well they need to get plenty of sleep and just not be stressed about not to worry about if you don't do so well in a race or and not to worry too much about you know having a faddy dart and doing all these things because as long as you eat healthily uh, don't just eat pizza every day all day every day and stuff um you know it's you you know it can really mess you up if you start to get anxious about that. And there's en- I think there's enough for young people these days to be anxious about what with the schooling and all the exams and all the problems with, you know, funding their uni and there's so many things to worry about. They, they don't want to be worried. Their training and racing wants to be fun and it wants to be a social thing as well. And, you know, to, and then, as you get older, yes, you know, you you can think, oh well, you know, I'm gonna train really hard. I'm gonna do high volume, train the road, and and you know, mm-hmm. you're not um, at that stage. I don't think it's so important. But I and I also think um, the other mistake I made was I overtrained myself so much that I'd run through injuries. I used to, I was, you know, had a bad knee problem with an accident at work and I, I never got it seen to and it ended up with me having a, a new hip and a new partial new knee because of that knee injury and I took no notice I just thought no I'm not stopping running I'm gonna yes it's a bit sore but I'm gonna run through it but to always if there's anything wrong don't just think you can run through it and that you're going to be better because you're not and it's far better to let the body recover and see somebody, you know, go and see a doctor or go and see a a really good sports physio and really get to the bottom of it. Because otherwise it it will keep coming back to you. And then, you know, you get more and more depressed and more and more feeling you're losing all your fitness. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and mainly if you feel you're not enjoying it anymore, then look for, look for another thing to do, look for another sport. And, you know, you never know, you might get back to it. Like a lot of people go out of it when they get married maybe and have children. And then, you know, later in their 40s and 50s, they're all going back into the, you know, competing in the Masters and uh, categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I, wish I could inspire younger athletes. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if I do, but, and I also wish I could inspire more women to, um, come into the sport and, uh, and so on.
0: Well, I think that's what you're accomplishing right now. Mm-hmm. You can count me as an inspired person for sure. Um, so I love doing this podcast. Lydia, thank you so much for, for doing this. Like I mentioned, we're going to have a forum thread on this and and Lydia is on the forum as well. So, um, if you have questions for Lydia, you just enjoy this podcast, let Lydia know, that would be awesome. You can go over once again, just search for episode 25. And if you want to become a faster cyclist, much like Lydia, then go to TrainerRoad.com. That's how you do it there. Uh, it will get you faster. Build your plan with plan builder. Even before you sign up, check it out. See if it's what you want to do and then give it a shot and We'll see, uh, I guess, uh, probably listening to the podcast. Maybe at some races in the future. It'd be exciting. So Lydia, thanks again for doing this. This is fantastic. And we'll talk to you soon.
1: Oh, great. Thanks so much. Cheers.